We're reading from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As I said, my name's Stuart. I uh, apologise for that little technical difficulty we had there. Um, but what we're doing tonight is we're continuing on in our short season, our three-part series on spiritual warfare. And what we're looking at tonight comes uh, after last week we talked about the victory that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Uh, he's defeated sin and death and the devil. And tonight we're going to look at the defeat of Satan and what that means for us. And next week we're going to talk about living in the victory of Christ. Um, the, uh, the start of tonight, uh, it'd be great to point out that we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 2 a little bit more that we heard read tonight because uh, what we thought as a staff at Soul Revival is that as we went through the book of Ephesians, a really dominant theme in, in Ephesians is this idea of spiritual warfare. And so we wanted to kind of just go back over it over a couple of weeks just to have a think about what it really means to us. So even though you, if you were here a few, uh, well, it's probably about a month ago now, we have already looked at Ephesians 2. But what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to look at Ephesians 2 and I'm going to jump into some of the gospel accounts of Jesus to just look at um, how the gospels and Ephesians actually help us to understand more what it actually means to be a Christian and how much uh, we have been saved from, and how wonderful that is. So as we start tonight, I thought it might be great for us to pray. So if you'd like to bow your heads with me, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight that you have given us this wonderful gift of uh, eternal salvation and eternal confidence. Thank you, Father, for giving us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. We thank you that Jesus' uh, victory over Satan on the cross means so much to us all these years later. And I pray, Father, that we would delight in Jesus more tonight as we think this through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I was saying that uh, Soul Revival actually had a Guestmore College lecturer come and speak at a week away before we started our church plant. Soul Revival uh, was originally a youth community. We're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Soul Revival this year and 10 years of being uh, together as a church. But for the first 20 years, we're a youth community. And back in the 2000s, there was quite a lot of debate going around in Christian circles about what is spiritual warfare. And uh, there was a lot of podcasts coming out of America, particularly from Mars Hill, uh, people talking about what spiritual warfare was. And there were so many different ideas around that a lot of the members of Soul Revive were getting quite confused and feeling a little unsettled about what actually is going on in the spiritual world. And so we invited Peter Bolt to come to week away, and he gave five talks on spiritual warfare 
uh, because he'd spent the majority of his career uh, actually studying that topic. And we found that really encouraging. But one of the talks Peter gave was quite confronting because while he was encouraging us that we have victory over sin and that the devil has no power over us as Christians, once we've been saved by Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit and we're safe in eternity, uh, he pointed out to us that the devil is real, that demons in the spiritual world are real and that there are many who are still under their oppression and that from time to time uh, we actually witness things as Christians that sometimes we find hard to explain. He talks about um, a mission that he went on to Africa and he was in a village in Africa and as he was walking into a village he said that he walked into this village and there were all these people that came out into the street in this village in Africa who were as he said in his talk manifesting they were actually possessed by spiritual evil spirits and they were crying and yelling and carrying on uh, quite a lot and Peter told that story at Week Away, and I remember hearing uh, him speak about it, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, I was putting myself in his position thinking, I wonder what I would do as a preacher if I walked into a village and all of a sudden all these people started manifesting with spirits. Now, Peter said that what he did in that situation was what he'd actually gone to do. He'd been invited to this village to preach a message. So in the midst of all this chaos that was developing, and obviously there's a lot of people who weren't manifesting spirits were actually really quite scared of what was going on, Peter opened his Bible and with a clear voice started to preach the gospel. And when he said that, I was like listening intently because I was thinking, I wonder what happened next. And as he spoke, I was fascinated because what he said was, as I preached the gospel message, the people started to quieten down and sit down and started to listen and before too long he got to a point where he invited people who didn't know Jesus to come forward and accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and people who had been manifesting with these spirits actually got up and became Christians and all their troubles all their spiritual oppression left them and people were wondering at that saying that's amazing and Peter went on to say that that experience was not something that he's had very often, but it is an experience that Christians around the world do experience. And Peter was saying to us at Week Away, I suppose you're wondering why preaching a message might have had that impact. What was going on? Why would simply preaching the gospel mean that people stop manifesting with spiritual you know, manifestations and actually calm down and listen and even become Christians. Well, he, his, his theory is that Satan and demons are actually spiritual beings that are opposed to God. And they're actually really interesting, interested rather in trying to stop people becoming Christians. They're trying to keep people out of the kingdom of God. And in fact, the scriptures call Satan and, and his and his cohort, a, a, a kingdom that is set up against the kingdom of God. So basically what Peter was saying is that as he preached the gospel, when you preach the gospel and tell people about Jesus, that's how people are saved. If people hear that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and if people hear that we are all sinners and we need Jesus as our saviour, and if people understand that if they put their faith in Jesus, repent of their sin, and turn to Jesus and ask to be forgiven in the name of Jesus, the only thing Satan has over them is their sin. So if they 
confess the Lord as saviour, they're forgiven of their sin and now the devil has no hold on them. And they literally go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that's really interesting because I'd watched a lot of movies in the 80s and there were some of those movies like horror movies in the 80s which were pretty silly and daggy and frightening at the time. But there was all these movies about poltergeists and movies about people casting out demons out of people and all sorts of stuff. So I suppose I had in my mind that if I'd have walked into a village and there was all these people manifesting, I don't think the first thing that would have come to my mind was just to preach the gospel. But when I thought about it and heard his explanation, I realised I think I've been a bit more influenced than some of that pop culture than actually influenced by what you read in scripture about some of this stuff. And what I want to do tonight is I want to say uh, that what Peter experienced in that village is a really interesting story to look at in the light of Ephesians 2 and some of these passages from the Gospels. And what I want to do is start with Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, actually, which will come up on the screen, because what we're going to see is that we're actually going to understand that what these poor people were experiencing in that village was not psychosomatic, it was actually a spiritual reality. Because we are actually in great need of being saved from the kingdom of darkness. Let's have a read. Paul reflects here and he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and the thoughts. Like rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So what's going on here is that Paul says that when we... Um, when we think about our spiritual state, we're actually dead in our sin. That's a pretty strong thing to say, that sin means we have a spiritual death. Now, a funeral is quite a confronting thing. And by the way, if this raises up anything for you tonight that is difficult, please come and see me afterwards and we can have a pray. But, you know, I was really struck by the funeral of the Queen Uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, whatever, and watching it on TV, I think what I was struck by was there was all this pomp and pageantry around what was going on. But the real essence of it is an old lady died and she was put in a box and there was flowers and a Union Jacks and all the flags and all the military bands, but none of that actually did her any good at all. None of that other than honouring her memory, actually helped her in that state because nothing was going to actually get her out of that box that they'd put her in, even though it was lead-lined, even though it was actually put into Windsor Castle. Where it went didn't actually make any difference. An old lady died. And when you see something like a funeral and you see the living and the dead together, it can be quite confronting because we're not used to being where the dead are. We're used to being where the living are. And the thing that's confronting is that nothing could have got the Queen out of that box once she's been put in there. But when Jesus was put in the grave, he was raised to life. He came alive again. He's the first in history to defeat death. But for the rest of us, if we remain in our human state as we are, we will all one day face our own mortality and death. And we know that's coming. But here Paul uses that image to say to us that actually spiritually we are actually as helpless as a corpse in a coffin, spiritually. We can't, because of our own sin, undo anything that has contributed to our state. And because we sin and we rebel against God, then we are dead spiritually. 
Now, most of us as Christians have heard something along those lines before. And if you're not a Christian and you're sitting here thinking about this tonight, I don't want to say all these things to scare us. What I'm trying to do is say that there's hope. Because even though we are dead in our sin, Paul is going to go on in a minute and say that Jesus is the one who comes to fix the problem that no one else can fix. But before I get to that, I just want to spend a bit more time in this part of the passage because in verse 2, there's this interesting sentence that follows that up. On the one hand, I kind of get it that if I'm a sinner, I can't fix up anything that I've done wrong. I can't take back anything I've done wrong. And I do need a saviour to come and save me. And the only saviour that can save me is the one who's been risen from the dead himself. But what about this next sentence? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, I get the first bit that before I was a Christian, I was more interested in worldly things and physical worldly things than anything else. And I got a bit caught up in that before I was a Christian, before I realised that there was also a spiritual reality to the world too. But what is this sentence that I followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient? Well, what that's saying is that people who are dead in their sin are actually under the control of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Remember earlier I talked about the fact that just as there's a kingdom of God, there is a kingdom that's opposed to him. And just as God rules the kingdom of heaven, so this kingdom has a ruler too, which is the devil. And for those of us that are still in our sin and haven't actually been forgiven of our sin, we're kind of at the mercy of this ruler of this kingdom. That's what Paul's getting at here. He says in verse 3, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were nature's the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. What's interesting is when we follow the king of the, the spirit who is the king of this kingdom and we actually are dead in our sin, what we find ourselves doing is not living as a spiritual person but living just as a physical person. Just as a person who's motivated by gratifying the cravings of our flesh and the desires and its thoughts. So the idea is that we're either spiritually born again so that we understand that there is a God that we can actually have forgiveness from our sin and be set free from all the uh, sin that's in our lives or we end up living gratifying the cravings of our desires and our thoughts. So this is quite a confronting teacher, teaching that uh, Paul's saying here and I thought it might actually be helpful if we, if we just have a look at the Gospels uh, because at this point, particularly as we start in Mark chapter 6, we're actually going to see that when Jesus starts his ministry, he's really conscious that the people he is coming to talk to in his giving his message are actually in need of something that they can't do themselves. That the people he goes to are actually dead in their sin and transgression and following the spirit of the kingdom of darkness, which is the Satan, even if they don't understand it. But the interesting thing in Jesus' time is people were far more aware of the spiritual world than we tend to be in Australia in 2022. I want to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, because this is a really interesting point to look at how Jesus is solving the problem of people being trapped by sin. In verse 6 um, of Mark chapter 6, we read that uh, Jesus is actually 
uh, here amazed at the lack of faith of the people that he's been speaking to. The reason that he's surprised by their lack of faith is because time and time again, when they see the power of Jesus' miracles, they keep thinking that he must actually be associated with the powers of darkness. So these people who are claiming to be God's people, the Jews, are actually so scared of the dark spiritual world that possibly they're actually used to seeing manifestations of power from dark forces rather than from good forces which is a bit of an indictment on them because if they are actually people of faith then you would think that they would be living a life that would be an amazing testimony to the power of God. So what Jesus does as he comes up against their lack of faith is uh, this, it goes on, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village now, what I find fascinating about that is that lines up with what Peter Bolt did when he went into that village and there was all those people who were, were uh, obviously racked by some terrible things there. And just like Peter Bolt started preaching the gospel, this was Jesus' response to, to uh, the spiritual forces being you know, in charge of these people too. Have a look in verse 7, it goes on. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. It's interesting there that the, the response of Jesus to the impure spirits was to teach the people. And when he sent out the, the disciples, it was to teach so that they would have authority over impure spirits. So in the face of the power of darkness and the power of the devil, teaching was the answer. Now, it's not education. It's not teaching them maths or you know, social studies or something like that. He's teaching something specific. And so are the disciples. They're teaching that if they are actually racked by um, their own sin, they can have a solution to that by trusting in Jesus. And that's what they're teaching. Because when you hear the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus, that's when you become a Christian. When you hear the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, there is no other way any other spirit can actually enter into you. Now, at this point of time, the disciples uh, and, and the people they're teaching haven't been at Pentecost when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, but Jesus here is laying down a foundation for that moment. The way Jesus is going to bring in his kingdom and fight against the kingdom of the devil is through preaching the gospel and telling people how they can be saved. What's going on here is that the only power Satan has over people is their own sin, is our own sin. So if we've had our sin forgiven, then the devil has no power over us anymore. And that seems to line up with what happens in the scriptures and it also seems to line up with what happened with Peter Bolt when he went into that village. Because as he taught the gospel and told people about Jesus, people realised there was one who was greater than the spirits they were scared of. But it's interesting that even in Jesus' time, people didn't see this reality. And the reason I've picked this passage is straight after Jesus sending out the disciples to go and preach, we get the story of Herod. Obviously, the disciples going out and preaching the gospel is making a big noise in the community. People are talking about this happening and are seeing all these things happening. And Herod, the king, is terrified of Jesus. Rather than seeing Jesus as a way to freedom, he actually assumes that Jesus is an evil spirit. Have a look with me in the text. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known, and some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Some thought it was one of the prophets. But here in verse 16, Herod himself is listening to all these advisors, says this, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, this is really interesting because Herod had indeed had John the Baptist beheaded. You might remember earlier in Mark that when Jesus started his ministry, it was going down to the River Jordan and having his cousin, John the Baptist, baptise him. And out of heaven, you hear a voice saying, this is my own dear son who I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus as a dove. And then Jesus uh, begins his ministry. But then soon after, John the Baptist is arrested because as well as baptising Jesus and preaching, he's also preaching against Herod because Herod has married his brother's wife, Herodias. And both Herod and Herodias are really angry at John and so they put him in prison. Now, by Mark chapter 6, when Jesus' ministry is now becoming fully, uh, full-blown in its power, people are seeing the power of Jesus, Herod is now stuck thinking, what is going on with this guy Jesus? Is he actually John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now, to our ears, that might sound strange. Why would someone think that was possible? Again, Peter Bolt's really helpful at this point because he points us to chapter 6, verses 21 to 22 to explain what's happening here. Have a look with me at verse 21. Finally, the opportunity... Oh, this is, this is what um, Mark does now. He kind of goes back to what happened to John the Baptist after he was arrested by Herod and how Herod has a big party and then at the party he has John the Baptist killed and he's beheaded at the party it's pretty gruesome but here in verse 21 this is what's interesting finally the opportune time came on his birthday Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee when the daughter of Herodias came out and danced she pleased that Herod so much and the other dinner guests and the king said to the girl ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you she goes to a mother and a mother gruesomely says to the girl ask for the head of John the Baptist on a plate which is just horrific And in fact, that's what happens. They um, kill John and they bring his head on a plate. Now, this is a pretty strange kind of birthday party, isn't it? But interestingly, there could be another way of looking at this birthday party. The actual Greek name uh, for this party that's been translated as birthday in the English is Genesius. And... Peter Bolt has done some study into this word genesius and he's found that maybe this translation to birthday could actually be translated into a different celebration. See, in the Greek, there's a word called genesius and there's also a word called genethilai. And Peter makes the point that genesius actually isn't often used in Greek scripts to describe a birthday but this other word Ganethi lie is so if it was a Ganethi lie it'd be a birthday because that's a celebration of life but in the Greek culture they used to have this thing called a Ganesias which was a celebration of the dead so this really interesting uh, concept from Peter Bolt is that rather than being a birthday party Herod might have actually been having a party for the dead according to their culture, to placate the dead because in their culture, and this is the main point, they were terrified that if they'd wronged anybody in life, that once that person died, they might come back and hurt them. And Peter Bolt makes the point that King Herod was actually terrified 
of King Herod the Great, who'd already passed away, and could have been holding a celebration for the dead, so to placate the spirit of Herod the Great. This is how racked with fear people were in the time of Jesus about the spiritual world. And we might look back on that and think, oh, it's all hocus-pocus and, you know, it's all a bit silly. But one way of looking at it is they had a pretty clear vision of how dark the kingdom of darkness actually was. And so when, 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 uh, when Jesus' ministry starts up and this person comes along with such great power, then Herod thinks, I wonder if this was this guy, John, that I've beheaded at that party, who's come back up, he's coming after me. Because according to Peter Bolt and his research, that if someone was beheaded, they were even more likely to come back and be hard for the person in the next life. Now, none of that is true. That's not what happens when you die. But you see, when people are living in fear of darkness, these are the kind of stories and the kind of things they make up. It's interesting that in verse 29, Mark makes the point after telling this horrible story that on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Mark's not just saying that the disciples buried John because according to these fantastical fears that people had, if someone didn't receive a proper burial, it would make it more likely that they'd come back and hurt the person in the next life. So not only was John the Baptist beheaded, but now Mark's making the point, not that these fantastical ideas are right, but he's saying a buried person wouldn't come back to the dead and in Peter Bolt's point of view, he thinks the first readers would have read that as this kind of Ganesha concept going on. Now, why am I talking about this today? Well, when Jesus is faced with the spiritual world, the first thing I want to point out is he's not scared of it. He's not scared of Satan. Time and time again, he comes up against demon-possessed people, and time and time again, he's triumphant, as we looked at last week. But what happens is when Mark tells the story about Herod, he's bookended it with Jesus teaching the gospel and then the disciples coming back. If you've got your Bibles open, have a look on your lap there at chapter 6 because in chapter 6 verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and look at that, and taught. So what, what's happening here is you get a picture of fear of Herod the king of the Jews at the time Herod was terrified of people coming from the spiritual world to attack him and yet Jesus is methodically going about his ministry of opposing the evil spiritual world by teaching the gospel and then his disciples do the same and they come back now there's this really beautiful thing I want to allude to in Luke chapter 10 because Luke also tells another story of when Jesus sent out the disciples to preach in the same way, but this time not just the 12 disciples, but the 72 disciples. And look what it says here. It should come up on the screen. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send you in the workers the field. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. So Jesus is saying, go into a harvest field. I wonder what he's talking about. They're not going to go and get crops to gather back and come back with Jesus with big bundles of wheat. What they're doing is the harvest of helping people to get out of the kingdom of darkness and get into the kingdom of light is about to take place. 
And what I'm sending you out to do is free people from spiritual oppression and I've given us a really detailed example of how oppressed these people were. And in Luke chapter 10 verse 17, they return again, but here in this account we get a bit more detail. This is really exciting. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What were the disciples explicitly doing? They were teaching. And as they taught the gospel, demons were submitting to the name of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of confusion in the church about what is spiritual warfare, and you'll hear some commentators say things like, if you want to get involved with spiritual warfare, then you need to do a course and we'll teach you how to cast out demons, and you can read a book about how to cast out demons, you can do all sorts of things like that. But here we get a pretty clear demonstration of spiritual warfare, and that is, preach the gospel people hear that Jesus can free them from bondage, they accept Jesus and the, the, the chains are gone. It's almost like the gospel is a key to a jail cell and it's the one key to all the cells in the world and all it needs is someone to carry that key and go and unlock one door at a time and all of a sudden you start seeing all these people who are in bondage, who are all dead in their sin and their transgressions, being freed. That's exactly what happens with evangelism evangelism is people being set free and that's why in verse 18 Jesus says this he replied I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you however do not rejoice that the spirit submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven so they were really excited that they were having a similar experience to Peter Bolt. Going into a town, people were obviously demon-possessed. They preached the gospel, people became Christians and the demons left them. And they're coming back telling Jesus, oh, you should have seen all this stuff we saw happening. Jesus says two really cool things. First of all, he says, well, secondly, he says, don't get excited about all that manifestation stuff. Get excited that each, not only you, but each one of those people are now in heaven and they're in the kingdom and they're safe. And the Satan can't get them anymore. But he also says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, some Christian commentators say that, you know, maybe that's a reference to Jesus saying that the Satan in his original uh, rebellion against God, maybe he was an angel, a fallen angel, and he fell out of heaven. Maybe Jesus is thinking retrospectively that in the past I saw Satan fall from heaven. But I don't think that's what's happening in this passage. I think what's happening in this passage is Jesus saying, I've seen the kingdom of darkness fall today as the gospel is taught so Satan has fell from heaven because the only power he has in his kingdom is sin and the gospel is the key to unlock the cage of sin to let people out of their bondage to Satan. They don't have to follow the kingdom of the air anymore because they've been set free from their sin. See, the gospel sets people free. Let's quickly just go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 again. Because the second half of the story is very exciting. If the first part of Ephesians 2 is very bleak, it is mirrored by just how exciting the gospel is. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by, by grace that you have been saved. 
and in verse 6 to 10, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves because a corpse can't get out of the box but you have had God actually give you a gift of grace. See there, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one could boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. See, the reality I want to finish on today is that the spiritual warfare is over. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the Satan. All that's left to do is to take the knowledge of that around and open everybody's cages. See, Matthew 12, 24, this is what happened. Again, the Pharisees are attacking Jesus and they're saying, like Herod, oh, you only have power because you're with Satan. Uh, the word here is Beelzebub, which is another word for the devil. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is by Beelzebub that the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. But in verse 28, this is what Jesus says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, he's really explicit there. How exciting is this? You've seen the work of the kingdom of Satan. You guys are racked with fear. You, you develop festivals and parties to try and do something to push back the darkness. But even in your parties, they get out of control and you behead people and all these horrible things happen. But you know what I've come to do? I have come with the Spirit of God. And I come to drive out demons and conquer them. The kingdom of God has come. And what does that mean for the kingdom of darkness? It's not an ongoing battle. Christians, we're not involved with trying to fight Satan. What we're involved with is following Jesus as he's defeated Satan. And this is how Jesus describes it in verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So Jesus is using another analogy here, saying that Satan is like a strong man. But I've gone into his house. The only way I'm going to take his stuff is if I bind him up. So here's the Satan who used to bind us up with our sin, who's now been bound up by Jesus. And he has no power over us anymore. And what is his stuff in his house that Jesus is plundering? Well, it's you and me. He's going into his kingdom and he's taking the lost and bringing them to life. This is why we can have confidence as Christians. But yet there is something I want to draw your attention to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says something interesting here. He says, Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why would Peter say that if the spiritual warfare is over? Well, I think back to that talk of Peter Bolt many years ago, and this is how Peter explained how all these things fit together. He says, Peter Bolt said, when Jesus died on the cross, it's like he took, and, and he rose to new life, it's like he took a big baseball bat and knocked the devil's teeth out. So yes, he still prowls around roaring, but he doesn't have any teeth. But what he's going to try and do is the same thing he did to Adam and Eve and he's been doing ever since. He's going to try and tempt you, he's trying to accuse you, he's trying to blunt your witness as a Christian and he's trying to keep you immature. That's what Peter's take on it here in 1 Peter chapter 5 is, the Apostle Peter. So what the devil really wants is for Christians to stop carrying the key around to let people out of cages. That's what he wants. He can't take away your salvation 
as a Christian, but he can stop you helping other people. If he can keep you spiritually immature, and if he can keep dragging you back to your old ways, getting carried away with the world and being too caught up with the things of this world so that you don't actually grow as a Christian, then you will remain immature as a Christian and you won't have the confidence to share your faith with other people. And if, if the Satan can keep Christians immature, they'll stop sharing their faith with other people. If they stop sharing their faith with other people, people aren't going to hear about how to get out of jail. It's simple. And so I'm really reflecting in my life this week about am I willing to continue to be a mature Christian? Am I willing to continue to share my faith with other people? And am I willing to try and not let the activities of my life blunt my witness? I sometimes go through times where I feel a little bit drawn back to the world. I get excited about soccer. I get excited about rugby league. I get excited about my car. I get excited about my friends. I get excited about the restaurant I'm going to eat at. And before I know it, I let those things become more important to me than actually Jesus is. And do you know who suffers when I do that? Non-Christian people. I want to leave you with this, this question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone, according to Colossians 2, who has the, the Holy Spirit, who has the Lord Jesus dwelling in their heart. A Christian is someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus so that they have been freed from the kingdom of darkness and now live in the kingdom of light. What the devil wants me to do is forget how important it is to be a Christian because it's important for me to be a Christian for the sake of people who aren't Christians yet. Can you imagine how devastating it would be if Jesus sent out those 72 disciples and they were on their way to the villages and stuff but then they stopped by Maccas on the way and then while they are eating Maccas someone said there's a new movie on and they all went to the movie and then after the movie they went to the latest football game and then, and then they came back and Jesus says oh how did you go did you go around telling everyone about me oh we kind of got a bit distracted actually we went to Maccas then we went to the movies then we went and saw a football game did you tell anyone at those places about me I suppose we're too busy eating having fun watching movies and watching sport see that's what happens to us when we become immature and we don't feed on the word of God and grow in our knowledge of Jesus we forget how precious it is to be a Christian and the people who will suffer are our friends and our neighbours and our families who don't know Jesus yet. Because rather than us being a strong witness to those that we love who are still living under the fear of the kingdom of darkness, sometimes we end up forgetting that. Well, to finish, the good news is that that's a very common thing for all Christians to go through. We all do that. But the good news is that we come to church each week to remember how precious we are. And I'm really thankful I prepared this sermon this week because I actually repented myself this week that I've forgotten this week how precious it is to be a Christian. And if you're like me tonight, and it's been a good thing to be reminded of how important it is that we tell people about Jesus, I thought it might be lovely for us just to end in prayer and to thank Jesus that he's patient with us and he continues to remind us of just how important it is to grow as a Christian and be mature, to not neglect reading the Bible, to not neglect praying, to not neglect going to church and not get distracted 
by other things so that our witness might remain strong and that we might be able to continue to tell others about Jesus so that we can use that key of the gospel to free them from prison too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your encouragement to all of us tonight. We thank you that the Satan has been defeated and our role in this new world that we'll look at again next week, Lord God, some more, is to continue to partner with you as you free people from prison. And I pray, Father, that we would see this as a very exciting, joyous thing to do, as your disciples did, when they came bounding back to you, telling you how excited they were that they'd seen people become Christians and that your response was that you have seen the devil defeated through their witness. Lord God, please use our witness in our generation in the same way we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.